Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I want to read the passage, um, and I don't necessarily want you to look it up at this point or um, necessarily read along, but I just, I want you to listen. I want you to listen as I read over you this morning. We're, we're heading back into the book of Acts, and um, I want to read the passage, and then I want to invite Christine up to, we want to share a story with you this morning. Um, why don't you just sit and hear the scripture that I think God has brought in front of us this morning. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters written to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, my brother Saul, the Lord came to Je- the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. I invite Christine Kaufman up here. Um, I mentioned last Sunday that there, I and, and actually a group of us um, felt the Holy Spirit leading us to undertake a Daniel fast. And so that started uh, Monday and and Tuesday, uh, a group of us, Christine and and a few of of us were in the prayer room across the street uh, talking about what what God was maybe doing in us, saying to us, and what maybe our goals are, our desires, what we're asking of God, or kind of what our our place is as, as we walk through that. And so we were talking through that, and um, it's, it's wild. I found that the pretty immediate impact of me taking on this, this fast has been an, 
an unbelievable heightened awareness of God's spirit and Jesus pretty much every moment of the day. Um, it's been pretty extraordinary. And so anyway, we were, we were in the prayer room and we were talking and, and uh, there was some noise outside and um, it was in the afternoon. So there were some women walking by the prayer room doors um, down to the pavilion for some ladies Bible studies. And, and we could hear some noise outside and there was a guy sitting in kind of the entryway to Park Place um, making some noise and kind of some stuff spread out there in front of the doors. And so we were getting done and, and I, I kind of I thought, well, we should probably go out and talk to him. So Christine and I went out to talk to this guy um, who was sitting in, in front of Park Place and um, found out he was pre- pretty, I mean, pretty agreeable in the sense that he, we had a conversation with him and found out his name was Jacob. And Christine did a lot of the talking uh, because uh, she's super good at that, not just talking, but talking to people. Um, <laughs> she's good at talking too. Uh, but anyway, so she was kind of engaging this guy. We found out his name was Jacob. Yeah, so talked to him for a few minutes and found out, um, you know, that really, really quickly we recognized he was feeling really hopeless, um, yeah. kind of shared with him that God loved him, trying to help him to maybe get into the shelter because he was out on the streets and um, he didn't want anything to do with that. And he started uh, really just kind of just being super discouraged, like yeah. he was hopeless. Yeah, yeah. And and so as Christine was talking to him and kind of sharing him some different possibilities and options, talking to him about Monday night community and 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 that meal and stuff, and um, and you you'd never seen him before. Yeah, no, yeah. I, that was one thing when we were in the prayer room, we could hear him and I looked through the glass just to see if I recognized him because I thought, well, I can go talk to him and I yeah. have never seen him, um, yeah. never been here on a Monday. So yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say he's probably in his mid twenties, but he looked like he was a lot older than that just because of life. Yeah. And um, so, so Christine actually kind of gave him some thoughts and stuff. So she actually left to go get some water for him and some, some, some snacks and kind of thing. And so I, I stayed there and was talking with him. And as I was talking with him, he made a comment. He said, um, I'm never going to find peace. Um, and, and he had talked a little bit about um, kind of growing up in, a, in like his family was Christian, but he wasn't necessarily, he, he said he was. He kind of had that mentality of, knowing about God and believing that God is powerful, but not really seeing anything for him involved there. And um, so he made the comment, he said, he said, I'm never gonna find peace. And I said, why, why do you think that? Why, why do you think that is? And he kind of didn't give real solid answers, but, but he, again, the, our conversation with him was um, a pretty um, even, even balanced conversation. And so then Christine came back with, uh, water and, and, and a bag of, of some food and he immediately took out and opened a bag of chips and ate a few chips and then he reached into his bag and grabbed this like Pop-Tart wrapper and opened the Pop-Tart and I was horrified because the Pop-Tarts were all crumbled and falling everywhere and I was like, that's so bad for a Pop-Tart. But anyway, um, <laughs> the Pop-Tart had an impact on me. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> and so he kind of was eating those and stuff and so... Um, so yeah. I had brought back, one of the things I brought back was a, like a resource card. He talked mm-hmm. to him a little bit about um, maybe going to Teen Challenge. And before I had left to get the information, he had said, well, maybe I'd be interested in that. Asked a couple okay. questions about the rules there, those kind of things. So when I came back, I was talking about that. And um, he kind of went into this, you know, discouraged, you know, there's rules and there's this. And then he said, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of started talking about the Bible a little bit. And then he ended up saying... Um, God is powerful. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at him in the eyes and I said, yes, God is powerful. <laughs> and I said, and you can do this, kind of try to encourage him to do this program. And I said, can I pray for you? Um, I thought he said, yeah. No, but he you ca- didn't wait for He kind of just no, nodded. Christine, he kind of just put his head down. Christine was like, can I pray for you? Boom, I'm praying for you. <laughs> like, it was, it was not enough time to answer, but it was great. Like, it was good. <laughs> um, I don't know, that's non-hesitating prayer. But, but um, as soon as Christine started praying for him and he immediately put his hands over his face and he started to like shake a little bit and like it was like this, as she started to pray, his face and eyes changed 
and didn't gloss over, but were very focused. And, and I know that he had drugs in his system, that's very apparent. But when she started praying, he started convulsing on the ground, throwing himself all around. And I mean, I, on it, like watching what was happening, I would not have been surprised at that moment that his body would start to contort in unnatural, um, damaging positions. And he was starting to yell and kind of cry and scream. And so I started praying, so I was like, that sounds like a good thing to do as well. Um, So we're both praying over him, and he is just, I mean, he is throwing himself all over. Yeah. Yeah, he um, was interesting because I was listening for a while, and then I really felt like the Lord said, just wait and listen. And when he said, God is powerful, that was where I felt Mm. like God said to just pray. And so as I was praying... um, it was so apparent that, boy, something came over him, and it was it was definitely not from God. It was demonic. And I've never, I, and I can tell you, I prayed over kind of a lot of people um, on Mondays that might be, you know, um, under the influence of drugs, uh, might have some mental health stressors, mm-hmm. and pretty, running pretty high. Yeah. And have, I've prayed over many people, and I have never had that instant response yeah. um, to prayer. Nor have I. Um, this isn't like a normal thing that, that I experience. Um, so as, as we were praying, um, he continued to kind of convulse and yell it. And at one point he looked up and, and his eyes were just very focused, but they did not look like his eyes looked like before when we were talking to him. Um, and uh, he got this really kind of creepy smile on his face, which kind of, I don't know, it kind of almost contorted his face. And he, this cackle, it wasn't a laugh, it was this really, almost unnerving cackle. And he kept looking at us like that and laugh, cackling like that. And so um, Christine actually kind of stepped away to call um, for some help from uh, the chat organization here in town or MPD. And so she was over making a call and, and he was starting to calm down a little bit. And I was trying to talk to him and asking him, Jacob, are you okay? Jacob, can you tell me what's going on? And so at one point I just felt the need to ask and I, and I asked him, I said, Jacob, who am I? Who am I talking to? And his response to me was, he said, I've been known by many names. And he started to talk more and more. And he like, at one point, he looked at Christine and I and said, I thought I had power, but you have more power. Um, And so he was saying things that very much reminded me of conversations that Jesus had with people who were under demonic influence or demon-possessed. Yeah, he even at, at one point when he had asked him who he was talking to, he even he said legion. He was using the term legion. And then when he, mm-hmm. he would be not really looking at us, and then all of a sudden he would just look at us. Yeah. And then that's when he said, you have power. And it was definitely yeah. someone other than the gentleman we were talking to prior. Yeah, and so when there's a couple uh, women who work for chat came by and um, they started trying to engage with him, he was still in this state. And uh, Christine asked if they knew who, who he was. And they said, yeah, we met him a couple of weeks ago. We got him to a shelter and he's a super nice kid. And Christine asked, is this characteristic of what you experienced? And they said, no, not at all. We've not seen him like this. And, and so um, then eventually uh, he wasn't cooperating. He was really, again, agitated in this weird state. But, and then a couple MPD officers came and tried to engage him and and they want, we wanted to kind of get him into maybe an ambulance and get him some help at the hospital because he was in a, physically in an unsafe situation. But um, he wouldn't go and he wasn't interested in going and, and wouldn't let anyone come near him or anything. But it was interesting, the whole time that we had the first responders and Christine and I, he would address them differently than he addressed us. And there was, I would say, a reverence in the way he talked toward us versus the way he talked toward them. Um, and he kept saying things about us that, that were of the nature of um, the power and authority that we have. Um, and that was distinctive in what he was saying. And, and so at one point he was standing there and one of the officers uh, kept saying his name, Jacob, and you know, we're here to help you. We don't wanna hurt you. And, And um, at one point, all of a sudden, his whole demeanor changed, his face changed, his eyes changed. And he kind of just kind of slumped down as he was standing. And he said, 
And the officer said, Jacob, and he said, what? And he said, what did I, what did I do? And he completely changed it back how he was when Christine and I first started talking to him. And the officer, and I don't know his spiritual background or what, what the officer thinks, but he looked at Christine and I and said, this is not just drugs, this is spiritual. Um, so we weren't the only ones <laughs> thinking in that moment. And so that, that happened. And so then he was being much more cooperative. And so I actually went to grab some things from, from, from inside and, and um, Christine was out there and Madison Edgerton was out there by then. And, and um, I came back and I came back to see Christine on the ground and the, and the um, ambulance and the EMTs and the first responders there kind of standing around a circle, Christine kind of looking like uh, a little bit like, uh, we don't know what's going on, but um, Christine was on the ground holding his hand, praying with him and talking with him. And he was very much glued, uh, his eyes were glued to her eyes. And so, yeah, so Matt went in to gather his things and um, Jacob had kind of stood up and was pacing and, you know, really nervous because there's several police cars and ambulance mm -hmm. there. And they're, I think, concerned about getting him in the ambulance. And he looked at me just, you know, they were kind of talking yeah. to him and he wouldn't look at them and he just looked dead square at me and said, um, I didn't know he was here. And then he said, why did he choose me? Hmm. Um, and then he just started, his whole face, he just started tears running down his cheeks. He started crying and he just said, thank you. He just kept looking at me and putting his arms out and saying, thank you to me. Um, so he reached his arms out and I just went and gave him a hug. And I sat down with him. I got the water bottle out and gave it to him and I just held his hand and I just kept praying for him. And um, boy, it just really struck me that He's, this is a young man that's made in God's image that the enemy has a big grip on. I hope to say had a big good grip on. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it doesn't look like that, but the enemy is after anyone he can take with him. And um, yeah, I just, I was like, this is someone's son, this is someone's brother, and he desperately needs help. So yeah, it was just really impacted me. Yeah, and, and I, really, I really think, I really believe that our encounter with Jacob on Tuesday was directly and deeply impacted by what Christine and I had been doing that week, that we had been in a consecrated fast, listening and being very aware in our heightened awareness. And I, and I think, I actually, Christine and I talking, were talking about this earlier, I, I, I don't think that the spiritual being or power in Jacob would have responded to us the same way had we not been fasting. Um, and I think that because I think both of us were much more filled with the Spirit during this past week than we are normally because of how we're pursuing Jesus in a very focused way. And I, and I think that it, it was just really interesting along the whole way of how God was leading in that process and how that impacted and how differently he looked at us as he did others. And I think it was the spirit in us, but also the fullness of the spirit in us in that moment. Yeah, and I, I would just say I agree. I think with fasting and prayer, it has a capability and a design in it to make us connect with the Holy Spirit in yeah. a very, very intimate way. Um, and I just think that God gave us a, an awareness that maybe we yeah. wouldn't have had as well as um, a boldness yeah. and to yeah. walk in step with him and follow him. So, yeah. 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 Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Um, you know, as I read the scripture beforehand, how many of you as I was reading the scripture and got to the part where Saul is on the road to Damascus and it says Jesus, he heard Jesus speak to him in, in this voice, how many of you were like, whoa, that's crazy. Okay, so how many of you then, as Christina, Christina and I started telling a story and you started to see where we were going, you were like, okay, that's crazy. Because that was my response on Tuesday. <laughs> 
That was my internal tension as, as we were standing there talking to Jacob and things started to change and develop. I was thinking to myself, um, I, I, I know that this guy's on drugs and probably really bad drugs and uh, this could explain everything. But, but as we were engaging and when Christine started praying and we started praying and and he started reacting to that and the things that he was saying made it more and more obvious to me that sure, there's drugs in his system, but there's something more in his system than just drugs. And there was this, this conflict inside of the things that I know and I absolutely believe in scripture and I don't question, but I don't think of them as things that happen in my experience. And it made me wonder how often I or we walk past people in our lives thinking we know the truth about them, but God knows something beyond what we know about them. And that it's more than just a situation that we already know about, but there's actually something going on behind the scenes. So this morning we are jumping back into Acts and I think the story that we have today actually parallels the experience that Christine and I had on Tuesday. So if you wanna follow along in your Bibles, we're in, in Acts chapter nine. And um, we're coming off of this place where right beforehand, Stephen, who's been serving and caring for those who are in need and preaching the gospel, gives this message and he's stoned, he's killed for the message that he preaches and this guy Saul is standing watching him being stoned, giving his approval because all the, all the guys who stoned Stephen took their coats off for maybe better rock flowing flexibility and they put their coats at, at Saul's feet and uh, stoned him to death and Saul was very happy about that. And so Saul being a, a rising star in the 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 religion of the Jewish temple and being a up and coming Pharisee. This is where we kind of catch up. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul is a very righteous Pharisee, and he's very concerned about God's law and God's honor, and so he goes to the chief priests in the temple, and he says, you know that I'm zealous, and I'm righteous, and I uphold God's law, and I need letters for you to help me bring justice and bring these Jesus followers to, to, to justice and make sure that they are either silenced or they are dead. And so the chief priest being very impressed with his zealousness and his righteousness and his adherence to the law, give him letters that he can take to Damascus to hunt out those Jews who become Christians, who have turned on the faith and, and, and rejected their own people and have rejected God. And so he, and what's interesting is he's going to Damascus. Damascus is 130 miles from Jerusalem. Not a short trip, but apparently the gospel had gotten hold of people in Damascus and there was a movement going on there and Saul was concerned about it and wanted to go all the way 130 miles to Damascus to deal with this kind of rebellion against God. And not only that, but I think it's also a testimony that the word of God has spread and the gospel of Jesus had spread so much that it went 130 miles out from Jerusalem and was taking root and hold in Damascus, in Syria. And, and, so, and so Saul gets this letter from the chief priests and he goes toward Damascus. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? And he said, why, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. See, here's the things that we know. We know that, Paul, that Saul is a killer. 
It's not like just he's putting like irresponsible statements on social media. He's literally a killer. There's proof. He stood and approved the killing of Stephen and he got letter. He's been breathing out murderous threats toward those who follow Jesus. And now he has a letter saying he can arrest those who are part of the synagogue, who follow Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem that they will either recant or they will be stoned. So he's a killer. And now he has a letter of authority for his righteous killing. And so we know this about Saul. Here's what's interesting though. We all know this story if we've grown up in church as the story of Saul on his way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. I think we need to re-title re, re, uh, this story and call it Saul on the road to discipleship because it is not a road to Damascus, it is a road to discipleship. And the first half of the story is how God disciples those who are far from him. And the second half of the story is how God disciples those who are already belonging to him. See, discipleship is God speaking into my life bound up in disruption and redirection. Saul's life on that road was dis disrupted radically and he was being redirected by God. You see, when you are going somewhere, we think of the destination as the goal. I think God looks at us and says, the road you're on is actually a road of discipleship that may lead to the grocery store today. It might lead to school today. It might lead to work today. It might lead to church today. But most definitely, the road that you're on is a road of discipleship. That's what's important about where you're going and the road that you're on. And so we, maybe we need to be more thinking about how wherever we're going, we are on a discipleship road. And when we run into a distraction or a disruption or a redirection, we need to stop and ask ourselves and say, Holy Spirit, is this a moment of discipleship that either you're drawing me closer to you or that you are calling me to draw someone else closer to you? And, and, so, and so Saul, here he's on the road to Damascus, this bright light stops everyone in their tracks. And understand and remember that he's with a whole company of people who basically are his heavies who are gonna enforce what he does there. People who are either loyal to the priesthood in Jerusalem or they are, maybe they're just loyal to them, or they have a deep conviction that these, these Jesus followers, these followers of the way, are a massive threat to their life. And, and so Saul falls down and he hears, hears Jesus. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, he says, who are you, Lord? So he knows that this is a divine encounter because he is a deeply committed, righteous, zealous, religious man who knows the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus again says, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Have you ever stopped at that point in the story and thought about the implications of what Jesus says to Saul? Because here's what we know. We know that at no point in Jesus' life did Saul lay a hand on him and hurt him, right? He didn't. And Jesus, as he's speaking to Saul, is at the right hand of God where he ascended to, preparing to return for his bride. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, the one you are harming. Here's the thing that Jesus says there. Saul is going out and he is afflicting and abusing and persecuting those who follow Jesus. And Jesus says very clearly, when you touch those who belong to me, I feel their pain. See, so, and I don't know, many of us have been in that place of saying, you know what, Jesus, you know, he was fully human and he had flesh and he experienced all the things that we can experience. And so when we go through a tragic loss or when we learn news that is dis disruptive to our life or, or maybe even changes the, direct, the, the direction of our lives or, or when, when something happens and someone does something to us, 
that is devastating or when we're attacked or when we're, things are said about us that aren't true and we, and we face consequences of those lies. We say things like, well, maybe, you know, we go to Jesus and, and we think that he's kind of like, well, yeah, I know how that is because when I was on earth, I experienced all the things that are common to man. But he doesn't say that. What he says to you is, yes, I'm feeling this with you right now in that moment. You are not alone. Because what's happening to you is happening to me. He says to Saul, what you're doing to people you're doing to me, and I'm feeling their pain. I'm feeling their anxiety. I'm experiencing what they are experiencing. What an awesome thing to know that whatever you experience, whatever you face, not only does Jesus know how that feels, but he is literally feeling it with you as he awaits to return and prepares to return and come and make everything right. He feels that with you in that moment presently. And, 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 so, and so here this happens and, and, and Jesus responds to Saul and tells him where to go. And it says in verse seven, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So they heard Jesus speaking, but they didn't see him, which is interesting because scripture doesn't say anything more about the company that Saul traveled with. And I wonder in the new heaven and the new earth if, if we will meet some of those people who were in the company of Saul. And I wonder if some of those men there heard Jesus and they were blown away. And I wonder what they went on to do and what they, how that affected them and what they went on to do in their lives for the cause of Christ. But as John says in other places that there's just not enough space in scripture to give all of the stories of what happened. But maybe that's a story we get to hear later about these guys who were on their way to be the heavy for Saul and then they met Jesus on the road of discipleship and that they went out and did their own thing in proclaiming the word of Jesus. And so then it says in verse eight, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Which I think there's a physical and a spiritual correlation here. It says he opened his eyes, but he didn't see anything. He was blind. But Saul was spiritually blind way before his trip to Damascus, wasn't he? He did not see Jesus. He did not see God. He thought he did. He thought he was righteous. He thought he was zealous. He thought he was doing what God wanted, but he was blind to it. And so now his physical state matches his spiritual state. And so it says, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he goes to Damascus and he fasts for the next three days. And I believe he fasted because he is a righteous Jew. And that's what you would do if you were seeking God in, in, in the Old Testament law. If you really, really wanted to hear from God and you were really serious and, and you really were gonna consecrate and separate yourself out. So he, for three days, he eats, eats no food and drinks no, no liquid and, and he fasts seeking God because of this experience that he has, because he's probably processing, because everything he has built his faith on is now in crisis. Because he thought he was obeying God and he thought he was doing what God wanted. And so now he switched to Damascus and it says in verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord, the Lord here in the verse is the same as Saul saying, Lord, who are you? Jesus is the one speaking throughout this passage, both to Saul and to Ananias. So the Lord Jesus said to him in a vision, Ananias, and listen to his response. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord Jesus said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him 
so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias is not an idiot. He's informed, he knows what's going on in the world around him. And Ananias answers and says, Lord, I have heard of this man from many people. How much evil he's done to your saints of Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Let me ask you this question. Does Ananias know truth about Saul? Absolutely. He, he, he has truth about Saul. Saul, not only do we know that Saul is a killer, Ananias knows that Saul is a killer. In fact, I bet the church in Damascus, or in Damascus was, was hurting and grieving about the murder of Stephen in Jerusalem. It was still fresh. And here Saul comes and Ananias says, God, I know who he is. I know people like him. I know him. I mean, I haven't met him, but I know who he is. And I know truth about him. And what you're saying doesn't exactly give me confidence about the truth that I know about Saul. And it's interesting because at some point, we have to make a decision and decide if we are going to go with the truth that we know about people or a people group, or are we going to trust what God knows about that people that we don't? And his love for them and his desire for those people. I know some things that are true about, in general, the homeless community. I know even before I talked to Jacob that his life has been wrecked by drugs. I had a pretty good idea even before talking to him that he probably didn't want to go to a shelter. He didn't want the help that we wanted to offer him. So I know some truth about Jacob. But am I gonna believe what God tells me about Jacob? That he has placed us in the prayer room at a specific time so that we could go and talk to Jacob and help him with a spiritual battle that he's in the midst of? Am I gonna accept what I see is true and know is true and is definitively true or am I gonna accept what God knows that is hidden from me? So Ananias had to make that decision. And, and so God responds to Ananias as he says, God, this is a terrible idea. Like, can I at least hide from him? I don't wanna just offer myself to get arrested. Like, at least make him look for me. <laughs> and so God responds, it says, but the Lord said to him in verse 15, it says, go. That's also the word Jesus said when he, the last word he said when he left to go to heaven, go. So it seems to be a theme with Jesus. <laughs> he said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Do you think anybody in the early church looked at Saul and his reputation and thought, man, that guy's an instrument for Jesus? You know what I didn't think when I walked out of the prayer room on, Thursday, on Tuesday and when I looked at Jacob? I didn't think, man, that guy's an instrument for Jesus. So Jesus says to Ananias, he is an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Like, that's incredible. This guy who is like the most feared individual for the early church is going to be God's instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles and to kings and to the people of Israel? And then he says this to Ananias. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's, that's a hard word. But you know what? Ultimately, when Saul then changed his name to Paul and was one of the primary preachers of the gospel all over the Roman Empire, you know what Paul thought of that statement that Jesus gives to Ananias? That he will show him how much he'll suffer for his name? Paul writes in numerous letters and he says this. 
He says, I am thankful and I give thanks that I would be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's what he thinks about that. And Paul, of all, all the New Testament writers, because he writes so much, a thread within his writing is the incredible joy that he has. Yet Jesus said, and he's gonna suffer a ton for my name. We've gotta change the way we think about suffering for the name of Jesus, that it is not a joyless experience, but it is being counted worthy to suffer on behalf of Jesus, and it is infused and full of joy when we can come under the umbrella and authority of Jesus Christ. Suffering for the name of Jesus is not a joyless experience, but it is, there's a fullness there. And so Jesus tells Ananias what is gonna be facing Saul And so in verse 17, so Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, and I want you to hear this, he said, my brother Saul. You know what that statement alone means? It means that Ananias accepted the word that God gave him, that Jesus gave him, and he trusted it. And he was willing to put his truth, the truth that was arguably true, in the back seat and let what God knows about Saul come to the forefront and define his actions and behavior and his thinking. You see, there's another prophet in the Old Testament who was called to go to Assyria, Jonah. He didn't wanna go, he didn't go, but he eventually he was forced to go. And when he got there, he didn't say, my brother Assyrians, he said, you guys are all dead. God's gonna destroy you, so good luck with that. <laughs> but Ananias comes to Saul, who is literally holding a letter that he can arrest Ananias on the spot. And he says, you're my brother. Brother Saul, I have a message from Jesus who you met on the road here, and I need to share it with you. Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because man, you are gonna need it. You need the fullness of the Spirit because God has something extraordinary for you and he's let me in on the secret and it's gonna cost you. But don't ever doubt that just like his people, he felt and experienced the persecution you were giving to them, Jesus will feel every single suffering that you face. And he'll be with you all the way. So, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And here's how I know that Saul met Jesus that day. Because it says, then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. He immediately rose and was baptized. A public declaration of who his loyalty lies with, Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And all of the company that he came with knew, and word would go back to Jerusalem. He made a public confession that Jesus is now his Lord and Savior. And then it said, and he ate and drank. He broke his fast, why? because he got his answer from the Lord. And he broke his fast. What an incredible thing. And, and, and what an incredible way God works to draw people to him and to draw those who belong to him closer. On Tuesday, I was on a road just to work. I have meetings most of the day Tuesday. Tuesday was not about discipleship, it was about having meetings. But Tuesday became about discipleship because that's the road that God has us on, if we are listening to him. 
Jacob was not a disruption to my day. He was the point of my day, according to Jesus, because Jacob is loved by Jesus. And Jesus wants to free him from his slavery to the enemy. There's four things that I wanna just leave you with because sometimes we can look at passages like this and, and they can be far away from us. For me, I feel like it's really close because of my experience this week. But I think there's some things that we can recognize because ideally no one will go out today and has papers that allow you to kill people. But you're going out and you're going somewhere and God has a desire, a discipleship path for you. So the first thing this, Discipleship is often disruption and redirection. So when you're going somewhere this week, when you're on your road going somewhere or you're going throughout your day, when you are disrupted, don't miss the opportunity to ask the Holy Spirit, God, is this a discipleship thing? Is this where you wanna draw me closer to you or do you want me to draw someone else close to you? Don't let that go by by ignoring it or walking away let that disruption remind you of discipleship. Second thing is this, Jesus is indistinguishable from his people. And what I mean by that is that you cannot do to a Jesus follower what you don't do to Jesus. See, when, when, when someone mistreats me, when the world mistreats me, or, or when I am hit by a tragedy, or I get news, that radically alters the course of my life. Jesus feels that with me. But also it gives us a warning because when you or I mistreat another person who is in Christ or say something about a person who is in Christ, you are doing and saying that about Jesus. And he experiences that as well. So it's both an incredible, confident, building encouragement, but it's also a warning because every time you come after a Christian, Jesus is experiencing the brunt of what you're doing. But in the same breath, he experiences everything you do. Third thing is this, and, and I, I wanna add something to this because I think it's important. Discipleship requires vulnerability and availability. And availability. You see, Ananias, if he was going to continue his path of discipleship, he needed to be vulnerable and go and present himself to Saul. No more vulnerable position for him. That was it. God, we need to be willing to be vulnerable in order to become deeper disciples of Jesus, and we need to be available. What was Ananias' response when Jesus spoke to him? He said, here, I'm, here I am, Lord. And even though he was honest with Jesus and he expressed his fear and concern and his apprehension, when Jesus said go, he went. He was willing to be vulnerable, put his life at stake, and he was willing to be available. The whole plan for it, I highly doubt his plan that day was to find Saul. Pretty sure it was to hide from Saul. <laughs> and the last thing is this. Discipleship is a surrender of what I might think is best for what God knows what is best. Saul believed it was best to go and root out and, and destroy the Christians. Ananias thought it was best to keep away from Saul. I thought it was best to stick with my plan for the day and not be that concerned about someone outside making noise. But that's not what God knew was best. What God knew was best was for Saul to take his word to the Gentiles and to kings and to the people of Israel. God knew what was best for Ananias was to go to Saul and welcome him into the family. God knew what was best for Christine and I to leave the prayer room and go and step into a battle with the spiritual powers that are all around us. See, the truth of a known person or people cannot stand in the way of the message that Jesus wants carried to them. 
And God has such a heart for us and those who are lost that even those who are anti-Jesus, we as disciple makers must, must risk and be vulnerable and be available to take the name of Jesus to those people. How often do we look at people who we clearly know with all accuracy and truth that they are against the moving of Jesus? How many of those people do we look at that we've maybe said things about and we say, God, is that person an instrument of yours that you want to take your name and your glory to the nations? Or do we just believe the truth we know about them? I'm gonna invite the, the worship team to come back up and, and, and lead us in, in worshiping and singing together. But I'd, I'd challenge you this week, whatever the Holy Spirit highlighted you from this story, from this morning together, identify what you need to obey. Maybe it's changing your perspective. Maybe it's changing your behavior. Maybe it's wrestling with God with some things that were uncomfortable this morning. Maybe it's believing that God actually is with you and Jesus feels what you feel. But what is it that you need to obey this morning and today and this week moving out from here? Jesus, I thank you so much for your love and the way you you disciple, you draw those who are far from you and you disciple and draw those who are near to you closer. I pray that I, that we would be willing to be vulnerable, to put ourselves in vulnerable positions and be available to do what you ask us to do no matter the cost or the request. Because God, maybe Maybe Jacob is your instrument and he's gonna take your name to places that we can't get to. And unless we obey, that might not happen. So thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.